The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. Well, we are in a spiritual renewal conference. This morning was somewhat of an overview. Tonight I want to begin to peel back some layers and allow the Spirit of God to open our eyes. And tonight uh, we're going to go into a subject that I trust will set the stage for tomorrow night. Tomorrow, tomorrow night actually is a very key truth. We're going to deal with a Uh, what I like to call provision truth. I'm even going to use a PowerPoint. Now, some of us that are over 50 are having to learn (laughs) how to do this kind of stuff. Uh, It's amazing to me. uh, For the first time, uh, really from an epistemological standpoint, uh, our generation is the first time that the older folks have had to learn from the younger folks. And I think it's produced some psychological damage, and those over 50 need counseling. (laughs) But uh, at any rate, uh, we're we're trying to learn about some of these things. But at any rate, tomorrow night I will uh, be uh, preaching a message that uh, I'll be using the PowerPoint. But the truth part of it is is, it's it's vital. And uh, so uh, tonight, I trust, we'll set the stage for that. And then uh, hopefully you can be back tomorrow night. I've learned in revival meetings that the most important night of the meeting is the next night. So, (laughs) but really, from a truth standpoint, it really is a crucial night that uh, we'll be uh, dealing with tomorrow night. Good to see you tonight. And let's look here at John chapter 17. This is, of course, uh, one of the Gospels, a little bit different than the synoptics. And as you come uh, uh, into this part of the book, in chapter 13, Jesus has spoken to the disciples and told them that the greatest sign of discipleship is love. And that's a fascinating emphasis that he gives. And then, uh, just a few hours before he's betrayed, he takes them into the upper room in what we have called the upper room discourse. That's chapters 14, 15, and 16. And it is a treatise on the Holy Spirit spoken by Jesus himself just before he goes to the cross and then, of course, is going to leave, but he's sending the Spirit. He caps that off with this prayer in John 17. And we're just going to look at a piece of this tonight because it's, a, it's, it's an amazing piece of truth. He deals with the concept that is so needed in our day. It's, 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 it's amazing to me how timeless truth really is. Because in regard to what we're about to look at tonight, some have taken a law approach, others have taken a license approach, and what we need is a life approach, and his name is Jesus. So there's a law app law approach. (laughs) There's a license app, a license approach, and there is a life approach in the person of Jesus Christ himself. So let's look at this tonight. Look at verse 11 here. As he's praying, he's now praying, and he says, and now I am no more in the world. All right, he's praying to the Father. He, of course, as the Son of Man, is praying and says, and these are in the world. Now, the these, he's referring to his disciples. He's referring to those who have believed on him as Savior. You see, salvation is not just a matter of getting you to heaven, though that's a wonderful truth and a part of salvation. It's a matter of getting Jesus into you. And when you realize that he's the only one that can save, I'm telling you, he's the only one. You can't save yourself. Uh, uh, we, uh, if we could get to heaven without Jesus, he wouldn't have died on the cross. See, he's the only way. And when you put your faith in him to actually save you from sin and hell, he does. But he doesn't just save you from sin and hell. He moves in. He doesn't just free you from the penalty of sin. He moves in as the power source to, li- to deliver you from the power of sin this side of heaven. And so we set the stage then for what he's about to say here. I'm no more in the world. In other words, he's going to leave. He's going to be uh, crucified. He's going to rise. And then he's going to ascend. He says, I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. Now notice the preposition, they're in. They're in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are one. So in verse 11, he says that his disciples, those who have believed in him, are in the world. Now verse 14. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So verse 11, yes, they're in the world. Verse 14, they're not of the world. Fascinating. He emphasizes it again uh, in uh, verse 16. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. But now notice here in verse 15, he prays. He says, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil, literally the evil one, 
And then he specifies how far this goes, verse 20, Neither pray I for these alone, these disciples that were around him, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. So if you're a believer in Jesus, Jesus prayed for you. And he prayed that we would be kept from the evil and the evil one. He prayed that in that keeping, we would know what it is to be in this world because we are in it. We're not taken out of it. We're in it, and yet we're not to be of it. Fascinating. So the title of the message is In the World, But Not Of It. In the world, but not of it. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd give us discernment tonight as we look at this truth and that you'd give us the clarity that we need to understand how to navigate what it means to be in this world and yet not be of it. Lord, use this to help, to make a difference, to free, to liberate, to bring into that experience of your holy life this side of heaven free and delivered and untainted and undefiled from the wickedness that surrounds so again i plead the blood of jesus through the victory of the cross to protect us from the attack of the enemy who so seeks to use the world to allure us away from you and so lord jesus i claim our position in you at the throne far above the enemy and in your name, I exercise your authority over the powers of darkness that would seek to hinder tonight and trust you once again that that not be allowed. Lord, we need a meeting with you tonight. We need to know what it is to have genuine Christianity, genuine godliness, not fake form, but genuine access of your holy life. So grant us that, we pray. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in, I think, the fourth grade, I went on an activity with some of the Sunday school boys, and our teacher was taking us somewhere, if I'm remembering right, and we're in a church van, and, you know, all the little guys are talking and so forth, and one of the boys said something. I don't remember what he said, but in response to that, another little boy said, ah, shut up. Pardon the expression, but that's what he said. Well, one of the other boys said, you swore. Well, maybe it's not appropriate for a little kid to tell another kid to shut up, but, but it wasn't swearing. <laughs> and it kind of reveals to us how sometimes we can overstate something or understate it. It's fascinating when it comes to the concept of worldly. Sometimes that word is used in an overstatement kind of way. Something is being labeled as worldly that may not actually be worldly. Other times, the word godly is used, and it's an understatement. It's not even close to godly. And so you have the misuse of terms. Now I want to ask us, I want us to ask ourselves tonight, are we worldly? Are we godly? What would the world say? What would God say? What is worldliness? What is godliness? What does it mean, as Jesus prayed here, to be in the world, but not of it? How does that work? Well, tonight, I want us to peruse some of the key passages that deal with this subject and passages that you probably know and won't need to turn there. It'll be recognizable to you. But they deal with and address the believer's relationship with our world. And as we look at this, I want us to note three distinctions of what it means to be in the world and yet not be of it. The first distinction is that this is a matter of transcendence over the world, not isolation from it. The very words of Jesus in our text, that we are in the world, verse 11, but not of it, verses 14 and 16, indicate that what we're dealing with somehow is, is a matter of transcendence and not isolation. You see, if we are in this world, but not of it, then separation from the world, to use a phrase that's been commonly used the last couple of decades, separation from the world is not isolation from the world, but transcendence over the world. Now, I fear that in our overreaction to others who perhaps got into some excesses, we walked away from the Holy Spirit. And when we lost our leader, we lost our power source to guide us. And so we tried to come up with another way, and our way was isolation. But that's not the Bible 
answer. We want us to, uh, we want us to, I want us to see tonight that no, it's not isolation, it's transcendence. In 1 John chapter 5, Jesus said, This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Again, he's talking about overcoming, transcendence in the world and yet not of it. In James 1.27, the scripture speaks of being unspotted from the world. That means you're in it. But somehow you're not spotted, you're not defiled by it. Again, in but not of. In Titus 2, verse 12, it speaks about being a uh, living, quote, godly in this present world, end of quote. So somehow there is the possibility through the provision of Jesus to be godly in this present world. God is not taken surprised by modern technology. And he knows how to navigate his children in the context in which we find ourselves. And so the fact is, it is possible to live godly in this present world. Man, hallelujah. (laughs) Otherwise, we'd be hopeless. In Revelation 2 and 3, when Jesus spoke to the churches, at the end of those messages to each church, he talked about him who overcomes. And so you have this overcoming life, this life of transcendence over the world, not isolation from the world, or as the Apostle Paul says under inspiration in 1 Corinthians 5.10, if it's isolation, then he says, for then ye must needs go out of the world. If isolation is true biblical separation, then we all need to move to Mars. (laughs) But that's not God's way. (laughs) No, we're in this world. This is the planet we live in. And so somehow it's transcendence, not isolation. Now, this does not imply that it would be legitimate to hang out in places of wickedness. Well, the Bible's clear on that. How about Psalm 1, verse 1? Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Obviously, you don't hang out in places that are going to drag you down. So we're not talking about that, but it does imply that there is a victory. There is an overcoming of this world as you actually walk through the course of life. For example, I was in one of the big cities of our world over in Asia. And uh, one day in between all the ministry stuff, they took us to uh, the downtown. And uh, it's actually Singapore. Singapore is basically one large shopping mall. <laughs> so all, all you ladies would love Singapore. Uh, they don't have land, so all they can do is go shop. And so it's, <laughs> that's just what they do. And so you have all these skyscrapers, and there's malls on every floor. It's absolutely incredible. Food and shopping. <laughs> uh, the guys go eat, and the ladies go shop. But it's, uh, uh, that's what it is. Well, you know, in the marketplace, there's all sorts of temptation. Not that you're trying to seek it out. It's just out there. You know how it is, the advertisements and just everything. You know, there's all sorts of stuff. And uh, I remember my friend said at the end of the day, he said, you know, it's wonderful to do what we did today and to just take grace throughout the day and be free the entire day. Now, here's a man talking about, okay, there's immodesty, there's allurement, there's temptation, and he just took grace. And was free. See, that's walking through the course of life. We do have to go to the marketplace from time to time. And yet somehow there's a transcendence over without an isolation from. Well, how does that work? Well, let's go to the second distinction in our study tonight. This matter of in but not of is also a matter of transformation by the Spirit not mere conformity of the flesh. Now, this is crucial. Transformation by the Spirit, not mere conformity of the flesh. Let's take some time to compare worldliness versus godliness. We need to understand what we're talking about. Obviously, in our New Testament, if you study this at all, there are two words primarily that are translated world. Uh, And uh, so uh, both are used in all the various passages. Uh, One of the words deals more with the world system, the organized system. The other one deals more philosophically uh, about it. But it's all a part of the world. Now, as you look at all this and try to put together in both words, the cosmos, one of the words, and then the age, the other word, those would be the translations of them, you find out that when it comes to the world, there's a leadership and a following. 
When it comes to worldliness, the leadership is, is the God of this world, Satan. He's called the prince of this world, Satan. And then there are the rulers of the darkness of this world. The powers of darkness, evil spirits. In other words, the leadership is in the unseen realm. Satan and his cohorts are the leaders of worldliness. Followers are obviously people who follow that leadership. So that means the world is the corrupt side of culture that is influenced by the God of this world. Now, not everything in our culture is corrupt. Our culture has something called cuisine. I praise the Lord (laughs) for the cuisine in our culture. I mean to tell you, wow, you know, that's a part of culture. And uh, God gave us food to, uh, to eat and so forth and so on. So, obviously, that's legitimate. If we didn't eat, we'd die. But there is, I think we all know, a corrupt side of culture. And the world is that corrupt side of culture that is influenced by the God of this world and therefore influences you away from the one true God. Anything in our world system that is influenced by Satan, he's constantly trying to pull us away from God. So when he has influenced culture in a way that it pushes us away from God, that's the world under their leader, the God of this world. Now, having said that, I want us to consider three defining issues of worldliness and then, of course, godliness. Three defining issues. First of all, and this would be internal, worldliness involves a heart for the world. We could say an affection for the world. We know this because 1 John 2, 15 and following says, love not the world. You know what that means? It means you can love the world. It means you can have a heart for the world. It means you can set your affection on the world. And the Bible says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world is not of the Father. And it goes on to say, for all that is in the world, and it speaks very specifically, and it lists the lust of the flesh. What is that? That would be physical desires that are taken beyond biblical boundaries. God made us, but he also gave us boundaries. And so when physical desires are taken beyond biblical boundaries, that's when we get into trouble. And the whole sensuality of our world is playing off of that. There's the lust of the eyes. That's material desire that is taken beyond biblical stewardship. There's the pride of life, egotistical desire that replaces God's will with your own. I want us to think about this. A heart for the world is ultimately a heart or an affection for Satan. He is the God of this world. He's the one who orchestrates the corrupt side of culture. So if we have a heart for the corrupt side of culture, it means we have a heart for the God of this world. Do you see it? See, there are only two wills. There's God's will and there's Satan's will. You say, well, what about my will? Our will either lines up with God's will or Satan's will. And see, according to Ephesians chapter 2, Satan is a master deceiver and he appeals to our flesh so that, so that we think it's something we want when in reality it's what he wants. What a deception. What a deceiver. And so the fact is, a heart for the world is a heart for Satan. Now that sounds strong, but it's true. And we need to see it for what it is. So that's the internal, a heart for the world. That's a defining issue. Another defining issue, kind of moving from the internal to the external, is conformity to the world. Romans 12, 2 says, and be not conformed to this world. In other words, the world is constantly trying to press us into its mold, its value system, its beliefs, its practices. And the Bible says, and be not conformed to this world. Now, it's fascinating to me. We need to recognize... The world has its own standards 
of which it tries to get people to conform to. How many of you remember the 1960s? I know I'm going to date myself with this question and date a few other people who are willing to raise their hands. <laughs> All right. The 1960s, the hippie movement. Now I was just a little kid. I was born in 1962, so I remember the hippie thing. And, uh, you know, there was a certain look and so forth. Now, what was fascinating is everything was done in the name of nonconformity. And then I saw this little cartoon in the paper, and here's all these hippies, and of course they look exactly the same, and it says, we're nonconformist. <laughs> well, they all looked alike. <laughs> they weren't nonconformist, they were reconformist. They just exchanged one conformity for another. Are you with me? Okay, so uh, it's fascinating. The world tries to do that. It tries to, it tries to set a standard and um, uh, a mold and force people into that. And so they have their own standards of belief, their own standards of practice. And by the way, we need to understand that the world defines worldliness. There's not a group of preachers that get together once a year and have a big uh, session to decide what they're going to preach against that year to make life miserable for everybody in the churches. (laughs) That's not how it works. The world tells us what's worldly. Sometimes it's that which is intrinsically wrong, and they embrace it to defy God. Other times it's not something intrinsically wrong, It's something that they've taken and then they attach something wrong to it. And I have to date myself again. How many of you remember the grunge movement? Uh, The clothing, the grunge look. Now that's passe today. Uh, But the grunge look was, you know, that's when the saggy pants got popular and you got nervous for these guys that maybe somebody would tug it and whatever. Uh, (laughs) uh, You know, this is barely hanging on. And uh, it's, you know, the shoelaces untied or if they had them at all, whatever, whatever. Now, is there anything intrinsically wrong with oversized clothing? Well, no. Probably in the Depression, people wore clothes that were too big because it's all they had. Are you with me? <laughs> so there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. But at the time period of the grunge, there was a philosophical statement connected to it. It was relativism in dress. <laughs> it was no rules in dress. Are you with me? So if there's no rules, who's to say it's too big? <laughs> If there's no rules, who's to say you've got to tie your shoe? <laughs> and so forth. And so it was humanism in fashion. I hope you catch where I'm coming from here. But my point is, the world set that standard. They created that. And so forth. Now, the issue, of course, is when the beliefs and practices are under the influence of the God of this world. Not everything that culture does would be evil. As I mentioned already with the food. Even in the area of fashion. You know, sometimes... And, of course, they're doing it to make money. But designers will display God's divine creativity of colors. In other words, sometimes, you know, one season uh, for ladies' dress, it's going to be pastels. Another season, it's going to be the bold colors. Another season, it's the earth tone. And, of course, they're doing it for money, but they're simply displaying God's creative colors. And there's nothing wrong with those colors, as long as nothing evil is attached to it, obviously. But uh, in that sense, uh, culture does that, and that would not be evil. You know, if mustard yellow is in, then, you know, go get mustard yellow, (laughs) whatever. Uh, (laughs) I just say that because of the colors of the 70s. But at any rate, uh, again, I know that went over most everybody, but there's a few people that caught it (laughs) in the audience. Now, when they start defying God's divine order. In other words, instead of displaying God's creative beauty, and they start defying God's divine order by producing that which is immodest, and that which God meant for marriage, not everybody else, well, then that's a problem. You know, there's no such thing as amodesty. <laughs> you know, things are modest or they're immodest. Now, you can argue where that line is, but nobody, I've never heard anybody argue for, um, you know, neutrality of sight, uh, our modesty. No, there's no such thing. And so Satan knows that, and he does what he does on purpose to draw people in. So whether it's hedonism, materialism, egotism, formalism, there's all sorts of ways that Satan deceives people, influences people, so they're conformed to the world. Even in a religious standpoint, there are some people who try to be religious without God. And that's the formalism that you have, and it's still under the influence of the God of this world. It's still worldly. And so there's this conformity to the world. 
Much more could be said, but we've seen there's a heart for the world, there's conformity to the world, and a third defining issue is what the Bible calls enmity against God. In James chapter 4, it says, ye adulterers and adulteresses, it's actually talking about spiritual adultery, it's talking about idolatry, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So enmity is hostility. So the point is, worldliness is a heart for the world, and therefore the, for the leadership, the God of this world. It is a conformity to the world, but in this, at the same time, it is a hostility. It is an enmity. It is a non-friendship with God. That's why 1 John 2.15 is so strong when it says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, if any man loves the world, he doesn't love God. That's just the way it is. And so 1 Corinthians 2 verse 12 says, The spirit of the world versus the spirit which is of God. All of us are following a spirit. It's either the Spirit of God, where there's life, freedom, deliverance, blessing. Or there's the Spirit of the world, the spirits behind this spirit of worldliness. So now let's shift that and go to godliness. Let's take the same three defining issues and kind of get some clarity here. On worldliness, internally it was a heart for the world, so on godliness it's going to be a heart for God. All right, that's simple. Now there's an affection for God. And this fits right in with Deuteronomy chapter 6, as well as Matthew, when Jesus said, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. You see, that is that first and greatest commandment. It's a heart for God. And so Colossians says, set your affection on things above where Christ is. You've got to have that right focus. And the focus is on God. It's loving the Lord with all your heart. And so it says, whosoever there shall be, uh, or excuse me, uh, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, there's that law of antipathy. You can't do both of these at the same time. You can't love God and love the world at the same time. Now, we can vacillate. We're all a little schizophrenic. (laughs) Called walking after the flesh or walking after the spirit. But the fact is, you can't love God and the world at the same time. It won't work. And there is a sense where love to God demands hating that which hinders your love for God. You know, I love my wife. I love my son. If uh, somebody threatened them, I'd do everything I could to stop them. You see, that's just a part of how it works. It's that law of antipathy that uh, helps us understand you cannot be worldly and godly simultaneously. We're to love the Lord. And see, godliness, therefore, is a relationship. It's love. It's a love relationship with a person. Godliness is not just conforming to a ritualistic system. You can do that without a relationship with the person. Even the unsaved world does that. And so we need to understand then that genuine godliness is a relationship with the person, not a a system. Godliness is not ritualism. It's a relationship. It's loving God. So you're accessing Him, His life, and therefore that's godliness. You see, it is that fierce, loyal love to Jesus Christ, not wanting anything to hinder that relationship. Well, let's go to the second issue. <clears throat> this one gets surprising. <clears throat> On worldliness, we saw that when you move from internal to external, it was conformity to the world. So we would think that godliness would be conformity to God, but it's not. Because unsaved moralists can imitate that. It's transformation by the Spirit. Think of Romans 12, 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye, what's the next word? Transformed. It doesn't say be not conformed to this world, but be conformed to God. It's not what it says. And the reason is we can't do that. Our flesh cannot conform to God. 
And so we need to understand we're not talking about another conformity, replacing one conformity with another. We're talking about a transformation by the Spirit. Look, you cannot be godly without God. And any attempt at godliness without God is still flesh. It's still worldly. An attempt at godliness without God is worldly because it's the flesh. It's one of Satan's deceptions. If he can't get people to just indulge themselves into sensuality and all that, then he tries to get them to be religious without God. It's still worldly. It's still the God of this world who's deceiving. No, not at all. That's not what we're talking about. Godliness is transformation by the Spirit, the person. It's not replacing one conformity with another. You see, if you try to conform to righteousness without the righteous one, you end up with oppressive rigidity. I pull those two words out of a book written in 1858 by William Boardman, The Higher Christian Life. You see, when you attempt godliness without God, you do end up with this oppressive rigidity because the Spirit is not there, and without the Spirit, the letter kills. It is the Spirit who gives life. In other words, good externals do not make up for bad internals. As a friend of mine named Randy Leedy once said, very helpful statement. You see, you can produce this form of godliness, and that means there is a form, but you can deny the very power thereof. You can deny the life thereof. And when that's the case, it's counterfeit religiousness. And, of course, that's worldly. No, what we're talking about is transformation. It's what 2 Corinthians 3.18 uh, says when it says changed into his image. It's the same word translated uh, transformation in Romans 12 too. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. That's the word changed into his image in 2 Corinthians 3.18. You see, well, how do you get changed into his image? The last phrase says, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. <clears throat> you see, when you recognize, and we dealt with this, I think, two meetings ago, that when you get saved... Your human spirit gets regenerated. What it is, it's the divine life of God. His nature is implanted into you. You're separated from that old master of indwelling sin. And you're raised with Christ a new man. That new man, God says, is righteous and holy, Ephesians 4.24 tells us. Why? Because it's God's nature implanted into you. And then the Spirit of God moves in. Now you've got a new leader. So you've got a new part of you that's righteous and holy. And then the Spirit of Jesus moves in. And the real you wants the real leader every time. And friends, when you yield to him and you trust him from the inside out, he transforms you. He changes you into the image of Jesus. And that's how you can be conformed to the image of a son. It's the only way. Amen. It's transformation by the Spirit. You see, holiness without the Holy Spirit is not holiness. It's counterfeit sanctification. And again, in our overreaction to the excesses of others back in the 60s and 70s, in the name of the Holy Spirit, we walked away from the Holy Spirit. And when we walked away from the Holy Spirit, we walked away from the relationship with our leader and our power source. And without him, we're in trouble. We end up with this shell, this form that denies the power thereof. You see, holiness is not mere conformity to a list. Unsaved moralists can do that. It's the holy life of Jesus accessed so that he's shining through you. It's the Spirit imparting to you the life of Jesus. And when that happens, there's love, there's joy, there's peace. Just what we saw this morning. Long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Now notice temperance. Spirit energized, self-control, which means there'll be some restraints. This isn't license. But it's energized and led by the Spirit. And so the focus is on his leadership, not Merely the applications. That brings us then to the third issue of godliness. From the heart standpoint, it's the heart for the Lord. It's the love for the Lord. And then there's that transformation by the Spirit. Well, on worldliness, it was enmity against God. So on godliness, it's amity, which simply means friendship, with God. Godliness involves a friendship with God. See, this is personal. 
a friendship with God. See, separation from the world. A lot of people just think of all the things you, you, you want to stay away from and they forget who you're going to. <laughs> See, it's a wrong focus. You know what, a marriage. Just got to go to a wedding this summer. I rarely get to go to weddings because I'm in revival meetings and usually weddings aren't in revival meetings. Uh, but at my home church, we were there when there was a wedding going on. And you know what's happening there is that bride and groom are separating themselves to each other from everybody else. <laughs> now, none of us would say, well, man, that's negative. I hope you wouldn't say that. No, it's very positive. You are gladly embracing the one you love. And, and that, that is so much your focus, this is no issue at all. Obviously, you're separating yourself to, which means you're separating yourself from. And what happens for some in this whole matter of separation from the world is that's all they have. They don't have a separation to God. They miss the whole point. All they're left with is the counterfeit form without the life and power. All they have is a system. I had a dear mother tell me after I preached this message, she said, you know, it's all we had. We just had separation from. We had no separation to in our family, and they were going through it as a result. And so we need to recognize, no, there's a friendship with God. There's a separation to God. Now, how do we do this? This brings us to our third distinction tonight. We've seen that it's a matter of transcendence over the world, not isolation from. We've seen that what we're talking about is a matter of transformation by the Spirit, not mere conformity of the flesh. And now thirdly, it's a matter of trust in God, not trust in man. In other words, what happens here is there's a wrong approach that people take that are trying to do right, and then there's a right approach for those who are trying to do right, seeking to do right. The wrong approach is what I'm going to call the fear approach. The fear approach is what leads to isolation. It is the monastic-styled approach to sanctification. Now think about monks who live in monasteries and study church history and all this stuff. What they were trying to do, they didn't understand Jesus as the way, and yet they knew they weren't supposed to be wicked, so they got out of the cities, they went out in the country usually and built a monastery in usually a beautiful setting, and they had walls to keep them from the wickedness down there in those cities. Problem is, it never changed their hearts. And what happens, even among those who get saved, born again, they're on their way to heaven, they, uh, they get fearful, and instead of continuing to walk by faith, they take a fear approach to being in the world but not of it. They actually take an isolation approach. They build walls. The problem is their dependence is upon the walls. Now think with me here. We'll clarify this more in a moment. When the Spirit leads you to a wall, you need to obey the Spirit. That's dependence upon the Spirit, not the wall. But if you don't get that, all you have is the walls. That means your dependence is upon the walls. The problem is, inevitably, life is going to take you outside the walls. And if your dependence has been upon the walls and now you're in a, a setting where they're not there, down you go. And there's a lot of crash and burns. They're all over the place. But when you have a relationship with the person, you can be in a very difficult setting and yet have that relationship that protects you in that setting. Isn't that neat? Well, what a possibility. You see, the fear approach has a wrong focus. It has a wall's focus. Can I use a word that independent Baptists would understand? Now, please hang with me on this. It's a standards focus. And don't get me wrong, we're going to see in a moment that the Holy Spirit leads in a way where we're going to draw some lines and we better obey Him. I guess we can call those standards. But that's not the focus. The focus is Him. And if you don't get that, then what happens is you have a standards focus, which means you don't have a God focus. And your focus reveals your dependence. You don't have God dependence without God focus. And so what happens is, is if you have a standards focus, then instead of, instead of a God focus, you end up with a flesh dependence instead of God dependence. Your dependence is upon the walls. Instead of the person. And what 
happens is it doesn't work. You're right back into Romans 7. You have this law approach, this fear approach, this standards, this law approach, and your dependence is back on the flesh to obey the law. And when you do that, the good that you would do, you don't do, and the evil that you don't want to do, you do. That's Romans 7. The problem with Romans 7 is it leaves out the Spirit. Remember, the law is a schoolmaster to bring sinners to Jesus. The law leads sinners to Christ. The Spirit leads saints in Christ. And if saints go back to the law, they end back, end, uh, end back up with flesh dependence. And when you depend on your flesh, flesh cannot overcome flesh and down you go. Either you go into flesh indulgence or you have this flesh dependent form without the power thereof. One is unrighteous, the other is self-righteous. Both are wicked. That's where all of that Leads And sometimes people have a split focus where they talk about Jesus and then they talk about all the applications that they think are the way it all has got to be for everybody. Now just listen carefully. If people who are trying to get to heaven focus on Jesus and their own good works, do they make it? No, because a split trust reveals a mistrust in Christ alone. So people who say they believe in Jesus because they pray to prayer, ask Jesus to forgive their sins, but in their heart of hearts, they're depending on their own good works to get there. That means they're not depending on Jesus because it's just like straddling your weight on two different chairs. That means that split trust reveals a mistrust in either one of the chairs as a single chair, which means you're mistrusting. So that means if you apply that to Jesus and your own good works, it means... You're mistrusting Jesus. People end up in hell for that error on the matter of salvation. So let's bring it now into sanctification. Jesus and this whole focus. Here's how it's got to play out. And there's all this focus on on, uh, a person's version of how the law should be played out. Again, it's a split trust, which reveals a mistrust in Christ alone. And that's when you end up with either flesh indulgence or flesh dependence. And I will say this, for those who have the self-righteousness stuff, they've got the junk too behind closed doors. You just mark it down. I've been in settings where there's been this pristine and everything looks so good and then this kid's eloping and this kid, I mean, it just all sorts of stuff is happening because flesh can't overcome flesh. So flesh dependence unchecked leads to flesh indulgence. That's why we must get to genuine life in the spirit. You see, the law is not our power source. It won't work. Nor is it our goal. Jesus is. He's both the power and the goal. You see, it's the spirit-filled life of his holiness and of his service. It's not just Jesus to get to what we think is how it should all play out. That's acting like how it should play out is better than him. Now, the goal isn't the law. The goal is Jesus And when you access Jesus, you have the fruit of the Spirit. And against such there is no law. Why? Because when you access Him, uh, the fruit of Jesus is love. And love fulfills the law, Romans 13, 10. In other words, you're accessing Jesus. He's not going to violate the law. He's not going to be leading you to a wicked, sinful life. No, not at all. But your focus is not just staying away from all this. No, your focus is on Him. And when you have Him, you stay away from all this. That we begin to see our balance. That's how it works. So when the focus is on externals, and the key word there is focus, when the focus is on externals rather than Jesus, those who follow find their identity in the externals rather than Jesus. And just think with me. If that's your focus, then those who follow find their identity in what you focus on, all these externals. It's fascinating. I'm an evangelist, and so I can be in one church uh, one week, and the next church the next week, and this church, their identity is, we don't do this, and we don't do this, and we do this. Be in the next church, well, those guys are liberals because they do this, but we don't do that, and, and everybody's... And their identity is in whatever they've chosen as their play out of the externals. Are you with me? The problem is it varies from church to church. That can't be the right way, folks. And for those of us who travel, we see that it's different in every church, and uh, so on. So something's wrong with that. However, when the focus is on Jesus, rather than the externals, then those who follow find their identity in Jesus, rather than the externals. Now, don't misunderstand me. 
externals have their place as the Spirit leads. But the focus must be on Jesus and therefore his leadership. And we'll see that more here in just a second. But let's just quickly get to the faith approach as we wrap this up. It is the faith approach that leads to transcendence over the world and transformation by the Spirit. Because God-dependence approach means there's God-focus. You see, now there's a Jesus-focus. There's a God-focus, which means there can be a Jesus-dependence, a Spirit-dependence, a God-dependence that accesses Spirit enablement. You see, the focus of faith is the object of faith. His name is Jesus. See, the focus then is the relationship with the person. We ended this morning about talking about depending on his leadership, depending on his enablement uh, to empower us to follow that leadership. That's the key. The focus must be on the person. So let's put it this way. The focus then is on the standard. His name is Jesus. See, some people focus on standards. Other people say, I'm sick of that. And they focus on no standards. You know what that means? They're focusing on standards. In reverse. Can you follow me there? They're not any higher. They're not, you know, it's just, they're still focused on standards. It's called reverse legalism. (laughs) These guys focusing on the rules. These guys focusing on the no rules. Well, they're all focusing on the rules, one way or the other. The key is to focus on the ruler. (laughs) The key is to focus on Jesus. He's the standard. And friends, when you focus on him, he will lead you. And look, he will lead you to the guardrails, standards, that he knows you need to keep you in the right place or to protect your testimony. And friends, when he leads us, well, then we need to trust him. But that means we're trusting him, not the standard. I hope you see the difference. Because it's a radical difference. I often liken this to a, a, a plateau floor of the Rocky Mountains to get over here. And I think I saw Grand Junction. I was born down in Durango. It's always neat to see all that from the air. It's beautiful. But you know, they got those mesas out there. You know, the, where it's just like somebody took a knife and cut off the top of the mountain and whatever. Okay, so you got these big plateaus. Okay, the plateau represents God's absolutes. The absolutes are found in the written word. You know, we saw this morning, uh, I didn't spend much time on the works of the flesh, but there they are. God says, hey, that's flesh. So if you're doing that, you know, living in adultery, you can't say that's spirit. No, that's flesh. God says so. (laughs) That's an absolute. Okay, so the absolutes are based on the written word. Anything off that plateau would be compromise. But on that plateau, there are variables. In other words, the Holy Spirit knows how far you need to be from the edge to keep you from going over. (laughs) And so he'll lead you to draw lines where he knows you'll be protected or, in some cases, not so much for your sake, but for those to whom you influence to protect them. Those are variables. We call them areas of preference. And their preference in the sense that they differ, they're variable from individual to individual, but it's really not a matter of your preference, it's a matter of the Holy Spirit's preference. Big time. Because he knows. And so God may lead this guy, all right, you just shouldn't have a TV. There are some guys that probably shouldn't. For others, God says, no, you can have it. Just don't do this and don't do this. Are you with me? The key is obeying the Spirit. God may lead this guy to have a smartphone. He may lead this guy not to have one. My point is, those applications are not universal for everybody. See, the legalists make... um, They make the variables absolute. They make it universal for everybody. Compromisers make the absolutes variable. (laughs) Can't do that. When God says it's absolute, when he says flee fornication, he means flee fornication. Sexual sin of any kind. Okay, so the variable, I mean the the absolutes you can't mess with. Uh, Compromisers mess with them, but legalists make the variables absolute. And that means there's no variables. That means you don't have a plateau. You have a pinnacle. And, of course, they're on the top of the halo. (laughs) I shouldn't have said that, but at any rate. Now, (laughs) if you focus on what you can't do, that's kind of the legalistic mindset. If you focus on what you can do, that's kind of the license mindset. But if you focus on Jesus, you access liberty. See, there's two ditches. And the only way to stay out of the ditches is a person. 
Liberty is found in the life of Jesus Christ. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. You see, when you access him, he's the one that protects us from both sides of the ditch. And so he says, and I love this, in John 16, verse 33, right before the high priestly prayer that we're in in John 17, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Friends, it's a minefield. How do we stay out of legalism? How do we stay out of license? His name is Jesus. He knows where the mines are. He can walk us through. He knows what he's doing. And friends, when he leads you to a conviction, you need to obey him. In other words, there's truth, there's principle, and then there's the Spirit convincing you of that. That's convictions. The word convict means to convince. Okay, so when the Spirit convicts you, hey, that's a Bible principle. Okay, that's a conviction. And then standards are what the Spirit of God leads us to do sometimes to protect the convictions. But recognize the order there and remember that the standards may not be universal for everybody else. There are things that God has led my wife and I to do that people probably think we're nuts. But it's okay. It's what the Spirit of God led us to do. It's where we're supposed to draw the line. But they're not universals. Are you with me? It's the absolutes in the written word. That's universal. And we can preach with boldness because God says so. And so we just need to understand how that works and obey the Holy Spirit. It's that, that is the relationship. And that's how we can be in this world, but not of it. And friends, if we don't get that, we end up pretty worldly or we end up pretty arrogant and self-righteous one way or the other. But we don't have to go to either of those ditches. We don't have to live in unrighteousness. We don't have to live in self-righteousness. There is a true righteousness. His name is Jesus, and he moved in. And we're going to focus on that part tomorrow night, that provision and how that is accessed and so forth. But there is the provision. I have a dear pastor friend who said, you know, worldliness saps me spiritually. It does. It saps all of us spiritually. But we don't have to go that route. We could say, I'd rather have Jesus. I'd rather have Jesus. And when you access him, there's freedom. You can take grace and be free. And friend, maybe you're here tonight and you're thinking, good night. <laughs> it's not just the variable from somebody else. I'm off the cliff. I'm over. I'm, I'm indulging my flesh. Look, get honest about it. Just side with God about it. Stop making excuses. And the Bible promises in 1 John 1, when you walk in that light, the blood of Jesus will cleanse you. It will clean you up. You see, when you get honest then God releases us from what we owe. You know why he can do that? Because he accepted the loss at the cross. You can't release anybody of their debt. You can't forgive them unless you accept the loss. And Jesus did at the cross. And so when we get honest where we've blown it and we've stumbled and we've indulged the flesh and, and uh, we've, we've catered to the world and we've been a part of this world system and we see all the decadence and yet we're a part of it because of this compromise and this compromise. Look, you can get honest about that. And God says he will release you because Jesus took the loss at the cross and he, his blood will cl- cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That means he will clean you all up. And you can get honest with God tonight and walk out of here clean because God says so. And friends, that means we can get back to walking in the Spirit where there's the fruit of the Spirit and there's true holiness because it's His life imparted to us in the world, but not of it. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.